Many of us may believe as a matter of common sense that the discoveries and advances of science and technology drive human progress. Where once humanity was lost in a mythopoetic world of irrational superstition, slowly but surely, and thanks to a series of revolutionary proto-scientific discoveries and technological innovations, advanced human societies have divested themselves of their superannuated beliefs in gods and spirits and dead ancestors who traffic amidst the living. The thunder is not a divine gesture. There is nothing auspicious about the eagle soaring overhead. A coincidence is just that. A coincidence. Sure, we may still wonder at the improbable and demand respect and protection for indigenous peoples and their traditional beliefs and practices. But the vast majority of us, especially if we take an interest in philosophy, a paragon of rationality, aren't inclined to declare the improbable a miracle or read too far into some uncanny crinkle in the everyday. Run it through an algorithm or put it under a microscope. Consult Google Scholar or read Richard Dawkins. There are many means in the modern world by which we can safeguard ourselves from the various residual pitfalls and embarrassments of long-sense scientifically debunked superstitions. But what if in all our enthusiasm for becoming modern we actually narrowed, not expanded, our understanding of the world? What if in our longing to comprehend, clearly and distinctly, the eternal laws of life we somehow manage to lose touch with its deepest stirrings. According to American poet, activist, and scholar of Chicana cultural theory, feminist theory, and queer theory, Gloria Anzaldúa, we have indeed lost touch with the varied life of which we proudly claim to be continuously expanding our knowledge. In fact, Anzaldúa thinks we have become so estranged that we are hardly able to experience life in many of its most meaningful dimensions. And if we are to regain access to these dimensions, to life's deepest stirrings, we must learn to inhabit the very signs and significations of what Western rationality dismisses as superstitious. We must learn an other mode of consciousness, Anzaldúa tells us, a mode distinct from that of Western rationality, one that facilitates images from the soul and the unconscious through dreams and the imagination. To learn this mode, we must allow our thoughts to sink deep into our bodies and follow Anzaldúa into a spirited reality from which both common sense and conventional scientific cognition remain alienated. Leaving behind the Western ideal of objectivity, which only distances us from phenomena, we must seek instead to become ourselves the juncture where phenomena collide. We must experience a shift in perception. In short, we must enter the serpent. This is Philosophy for the People. I'm your host, Nathan Wiley, here with producer Nick Cook. In today's episode, we are entering the serpent with 20th century feminist poet and Chicana studies scholar Gloria Anzaldúa. And here to help guide us along the serpentine paths of Anzaldúa's thought is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Marquette University, Dr. Stephanie Rivera-Baruz. Dr. Rivera-Baruz, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to opening up this discussion of Anzaldúa's work with you, Professor. But before we get there, I want to follow Anzaldúa's lead and begin by putting myself into question and allowing philosophy to become something personal. This is something I also would like to invite the listeners to consider doing as they hear what Anzaldúa has to say, since for her, the personal thoughts, feelings, and experiences of the questioner are not inadmissible biases that can and should be somehow suspended in the service of quote-unquote objective rationality. Rather, they are part and parcel of the very substance and modes through which we traffic with and apprehend reality in all of its diverse dimensions. Our personal stories are by no means irrelevant, according to Anzaldúa, nor are uncanny crinkles in the everyday, weird coincidences, or auspicious encounters with the natural world things she thinks simply ought to be ignored or rationalized. I look for omens everywhere, she writes in a chapter titled Entering the Serpent in her book, Borderlands. Everywhere I catch glimpses of the patterns and cycles of my life. We're supposed to forget, she continues, that every cell in our bodies, 
Every bone and bird and worm has spirit in it. It's what she calls white rationality that dictates to us that the existence of this other world is mere superstition. So, Professor, perhaps there's a good place to start with what Anzaldúa calls white rationality. So firstly, what does she mean by this? And second, why does she reject it? So thank you so much again for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, in terms of how she's thinking about what you refer to as white rationality, I think one of the things that Anzaldúa is primarily concerned with is the ways in which we've constructed the concept of rationality to begin with, right? That is always up against the idea that there is something that is non-rational, right? And that's also where we tend to place the realm of the spiritual, um, uh, the realm of the creative, right? And these are the types of things that are distinctly um, dichotomized from what is considered rational in the kind of Western traditional philosophical sense. And so her concern, I think, is primarily with the ways in which we've constructed notions of rationality that distance us from our bodies, our spiritual lives, our emotional lives, as if they were distinct things that do not inform how we think about what it means to be rational in the first place. And I think this is what she's trying to trace when she talks about something being uh, part or participating in white rationality um, rather than uh, trying to see the ways in which we think in the world as being embodied um, in ways that stretch, right, rather than split us or fragment us, generally speaking. Mm, yes. Uh, yeah, you, you use the word, uh, I, I think, objective there. Um, we talk about being rational, being objective, but Anzal Dua writes that in trying to become objective, Western culture made objects of things and people when it distanced itself from them, thereby losing touch with them, as you just pointed out. And she writes that this dichotomy is the root of all violence. What does she have in mind um, when she talks about violence in this context? Yeah, I think she has a, she's talking about a very, um, multifaceted notion of violence uh, here. So thinking about the ways in which the idea of Western culture is rooted in a colonial history, right? And what this colonial history does is that it's made objects um, out of people, out of places, out of land, out of people's relationships to land, um, as well as people's uh, own relationships to their spiritual lives, their creative lives, um, in order to categorize them, um, displace them, uh, or even enact acts of genocide against them, right, to do away with them. And so the type of violence she's referring to here isn't just one single form of violence, right, but rather a way in which uh, the colonial project required uh, the objectification of people that we are now heir to today, right? And philosophy is part of that heirloom where we've been taught that to be a rational subject, as you were just pointing out, involves becoming distant from all of the things that make you or might make you a living, breathing human being, right? Um, and this is part of what I think she's tracking with respect to Western culture, where we make objects out of people and things um, in order to be able to colonize them in the first place and ensure that or attempt to ensure that people forget about these types of relationships that they have um, with the world around them as well as their, their histories and their ancestries um, in the process or along the way. And there are, according to Anzal Dua, there are uh, alternative ways of thinking about, experiencing, seeing, in a word, apprehending the world, apprehending reality that we in, in which we find ourselves. Um, one such mode of apprehension, let's call it, is what she calls la facultad. Yeah. What, what does she mean by that? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, this is a bit of a, of a loaded question, right? Because there's a few steps that we need to take in order to be able to understand what she's after with the concept of la facultad. Um, so... Part of what I think she's after, generally speaking, in her projects is to point attention towards uh, the fact that the, the experience of being a human being um, 
requires an attention to many different ways of knowing, right? And uh, even if we're taught that there's only that those ways of knowing uh, should be hierarchical or that we should privilege some over the others right she wants to draw attention to the fact that what it means to learn and to move through the world is to deploy all sorts of mechanisms uh, that are not just about for instance the senses or just about uh, what it means to be a rational creature but rather it's a network of these relations that helps us move through the world um, even if we are constantly told to reject some of the dimensions of, of that knowing. And so with the concept of la facultad, part of what I think she's trying to get after is that when you are uh, the subject of uh, trauma, specifically transgenerational traumas, right? And she's thinking about um, colonialism here, I think, very specifically, um, your ways of apprehending the world, right, are already in tune with the fact that you are heir to all of these histories that are themselves traumatic, right? And this is going to open up your senses if you allow yourself to, um, or you are paying attention to, um, uh, a sensitivity to the world around you where you know that some spaces are safer than others, where you know whether or not um, it's okay to speak in certain capacities or not, or you might even know when it's, you know, the, the, the kinds of codes for switching between spaces and moving between spaces that um, is only um, acquired precisely because you are the type of subject that is heir to all of this uh, wounding, right, is another type of term that shows up uh, throughout her, her work. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't to say that la facultad is the type of thing that is reserved explicitly or only for subjects that are heir to this type of trauma. I think it's something that she um, identifies as having, as all human beings having, mm-hmm. um, but it is going to be highly, highly sensitized, right, mm-hmm. um, specifically in in particular uh, colonial subjects, right? Um, and of those which are also multiplicitous and multifaceted, right? So not everyone's going to experience these types of things in the same type of way. Um, but it's certainly going to be present, I think, um, because it's part of what it means to be a human being. But the only way you're going to get there is by recognizing that uh, our sensibilities are also uh, also multifaceted. There isn't just one type of way of knowing or moving through the world, but there are uh, many ways of doing that. And once we become sensitized to that, that opens up all other types of avenues for thinking about um, what it means to be a subject of this type of wounding that might sensitize you in other types of ways to the world. I want to um, read a, a couple of quotes from her, the way that she describes uh, La Facultad. She has such uh, interesting ways of putting it. She writes that uh, those who are pushed out of the tribe for being different are likely to become more sensitized when not brutalized into insensitivity. Those who do not feel psychologically or physically safe in the world are more apt to develop this sense. Those who are pounced on the most have it the strongest. The females, the homosexuals of all races, the dark-skinned, the outcast, the persecuted, the marginalized, the foreign. Another description she offers of it, and speaking from her own experience, she writes, I walk into a house and I know whether it is empty or occupied. I feel the lingering charge in the air of a recent fight or lovemaking or depression. I sense the emotions someone near is admitting, whether friendly or threatening. I mean, one example that came to mind when I was thinking about this is I was watching, um, I don't know if it was, I think it was an Amazon special on Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy's victims mm. from the point of view of the victims. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. premise of was that we sort of valorized Ted Bundy and the whole mm-hmm. story of the heinous crimes he committed centers around him. Well, let's tell it from the point of view of the women. Mm-hmm. And one woman who was interviewed about that uh, talks that she, she was a would-be victim of Bundy's. And she says, uh, she tells a, a chilling story of having been lured into his car on the pretext that he was having car trouble he asked her to fiddle with something in the interior of the car, presumably, I guess, the ignition, while he filled it with gas or something along those lines. She was accommodating because he seemed like a friendly stranger in need. But just after a few moments, she was overcome by a foreboding sense of imminent danger. And so she leapt from the car and took off running. 
Uh, Anzal Dua says, um, La Facultad is that kind of sense in mm -hmm. part. And she even writes that we'll sense the rapist when he's five blocks down the street. If you have it strong in mm -hmm. you, maybe some of you've been through that experience before. And so uh, it's a heightened sensitivity that you, you have. Uh, is La Facultad something that can serve the philosopher in their quest for understanding and wisdom for a life well lived? That's a good question. I, I think that part of what's at stake in her concept of La Facultad is a reminder of the fact that how we perceive the world is not a flat experience, right? And so the experiences that we carry with us, right, as well as the experiences that others have carried before us that are also culturally uh, transmitted to us in certain respects, right? We carry those with us, right? And so part of what she's reminding us with um, introducing the concept of La Facultad is to say, look, there are ways of perceiving and ways of knowing that go beyond um, our common understandings or maybe our normative understandings of what is real and what is not real, right? Even with the example that you just gave of, um, uh, of Ted Bundy's victim, right? Um, the things that we know in our bones or our body knows, but maybe are not necessarily articulable, right, in words, uh, sensations and perceptions that we might have, right, when you walk into a room and you know something's happened, but you can't necessarily discuss it or verbalize it, right? The nonverbal details of the world, right? And so I think that in asking us about, well, how does this translate to the, the work of the philosopher? I mean, I think part of what Ansaldo would tell us is that this should be the work of everybody, right? Is to really reconceptualize how we think about what it means to perceive in the first place. And so if the project of the philosopher is to be searching for wisdom and understanding, then I think for Ansaldua, it's not so much whether la facultad can serve, can serve us, right? But it's a recognition of the fact that La facultad is something we carry if we just stretch our understandings of what it means to perceive wisdom in the first place, right? So where are we looking for wisdom? What rises to the level of being wise? What rises to the level of knowledge, right? And what sorts of things are we maybe uh, missing uh, given our understandings, our historical Western understandings of what it means for something to be uh, known, right? And so... I think she would push us here, right? If she were sitting in the room, she would certainly push us to think about the fact that uh, maybe the philosophers have gotten it entirely wrong, right? And that our quest for understanding and wisdom is really shallow. Mm. And we really need to stretch it uh, if we're going to get at a more robust and deeper understanding of what it means to exist in the world with each other and all of the complexities that that carries with it. So things can be perceived and grasped and conceptualized even, experienced in dramatically different ways, uh, depending on what sort of mode of perception we're cultivating or has been cultivated based on the way our lives have played out, maybe. And if we're trained and conditioned uh, to think strictly in terms of, say, a scientific apprehension of the world, then our perception likewise uh, is molded along those lines and might give rise to a certain way of interacting with reality, but it might also uh, cover over to our detriment other ways in which we might be able to uh, experience things. And so Anzal Dua wants to call our attention to that uh, on a philosophical level. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And so, um, and I would just further add that it's... Um, it's also the case that it's not so much that we can't, uh, it's not that it would cover over our ability to see other things, right? But it rather makes them entirely inaccessible, right? Mm. And so if we're consistently taught that the only way to maneuver through the world and perceive and grasp and know things about ourselves and others is in a one-dimensional uh, way, we're not going to be able to access the other dimensions of existence that might actually be able to heal or help us heal all of the wounds and the traumas that we're carrying with us to begin with, right? And so for her, I think it's a it's a it's a, a more profound claim, right, mm -hmm. about 
uh, what it means to navigate the world in these types of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's uh, all the things that are off the bat dismissed as mere superstition actually uh, are teeming with profundities, if only we knew how to access them. Right, right. And I think she treats them all as providing in really important information, right? Um, it's just that we don't necessarily have uh, the energy directed uh, towards those places to really unpack what type of information we could gain, right, or what type of knowledge we could gain um, from those types of sources, right? Because we've been directed to think about them as being uh, non-sources, in fact, right? Um, as not rising to the level of being sources of any type of valuable information. And there are certain patterns of behavior that she describes as um, contributing to our limiting our access to those things. And she talks about, for example, feelings like shame and inadequacy mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how we self-censure and erase those kinds of feelings because they're too painful to confront. Mm -hmm. uh, we might, for example, develop an addiction or compulsive behavior to distract ourselves and, as she puts it, keep awareness at bay. Mm -hmm. but why does she think that it's so important to develop a capacity to confront such fears and process our painful experiences? And why does she think that we re resist doing so? So I think that, um, again, situating her as, uh, as a person as well as a writer is important here, right? She's writing from um, the, the spatial and uh, geotemporal landscape of the borderlands, right? Um, which itself is, I mean, as she opens borderlands, is she calls it, right, uh, a wound that won't heal. Um, and in, in every sense of the material, symbolic, right, embodied, there's a lot of dimensions to that wounding. And so her point of entry to the conversation is already a place of trauma, right? She's presuming already, um, given her starting point, right, that we are all wounded in some capacity or another, right? Just that our, our woundings are going to be of different sorts, right? But um, we are all in some capacity wounded. And so the project then becomes trying to articulate mechanisms or ways of navigating the world by centering um, this woundedness without the goal of of creating a whole unitary subject, right? Which Western philosophy has told us is actually what we're supposed to be striving for, right? She comes around and says, well, look, why should we even value the concept of a unitary subject in the first place when it doesn't seem to me, right, um, from her perspective, it doesn't seem to me like we are unified to begin with, right? Why do we think we should be unified subjects um, to begin with? Um, and if we start, again, questioning from that place, then the projects of trying to what it means to heal, what it means to actually take very close looks at our wounds and our traumas becomes the processes of what it means to be living, right? To be a living human breathing being on this planet, um, which, which is a very different project, right, than um, maybe what a standard Western philosophical project would tell you, that the goal of healing is to somehow reproduce a unified subject at the end that can then just, you know, go forth as if nothing happened, right, um, or something along those lines. And it's that drive uh, toward being a unified self that leads us to always try to hold it together, keep it together. Right. But she actually says that it's necessary to allow yourself to fall apart. Absolutely. And she has a category, let's, uh, a concept, let's say, for the state in which the self is allowed to finally let, like, stop holding on so tightly and just mm -hmm. fall apart. Mm -hmm. She calls it the kwatlekue state. Mm -hmm. What does she mean by the kwatlekue state? So um, here we have an example of, uh, there's many of these instances throughout the body of her work where she's drawing on Aztec uh, philosophy to help her explain, right, the types of processes that she's after. Mm -hmm. And so with the Kualikua state, I think part of what she's drawing attention to is the process by which we do introspective work, right? And what that feels like, what that might look like, um, what that experiential space is like, right? And for her, um, 
it's a it's a it's ambivalent it's ambiguous um it's a process of both seeing oneself and being seen right and it's uh, an introspective um ambiguous state where we you know let ourselves exist in the many fragments and pieces that we come in right depending on the on the moments and times in which we enter this state um because we can be in the Kualikua state at different times in our lives and what that looks like and what that feels like and what that experience is like is going to vary, right? Mm -hmm. Because we too are um, shifting uh, uh, creatures. Um, and so I think part of what she's trying to capture here is that experience of um, letting oneself go into the deepest corners of our psyche that we ourselves are scared to even admit exist um, and explore who we are there. And part of doing that, right, involves um, almost uh, collapsing what we would consider to be the subject-object dichotomy that we take to be so uh, central to how we understand what it means to be a human being in the first place, right? And so if we collapse that experience and just let ourselves experience our own selves as these um, multi-layered, but at, yet at the same time ambiguous subjects, right, into the depths of the spaces that we find terrifying, that scare us, right? Um, that that's, that's a place of deep and profound knowledge that we don't access, mm -hmm. right, uh, or rarely access. Yeah, I mean, reading Anzaldúa, I could, you know, I could really identify with some of these descriptions. I think everyone is familiar with what it's like to find yourself suddenly met with circumstances that put you in a condition of that you've never been in before. Right. Know? The point of entry for her, particularly um, in the section of the book where she talks about the Cuartico estate. Um, is rupture, right? She, she calls it a rupture in our everyday world. However, how we think about rupture there, right, is important, right? As you noted, it can be traumatic events can rupture our everyday world, but beautiful, joyous events can also rupture mm -hmm. our everyday world, mm -hmm. right? The extraordinary things that happen to us, right? Those that would sit outside of our everydayness, right? That register to us as being... Um, out of the ordinary, right? Create access or bridges into the state, right? And those can be joyous. Those can be absolutely joyous, but they can absolutely also be rooted in um, uh, the types of experiences that are also very painful, right? So there are different ways of getting at this type of introspection um, and work that she's interested in, in getting us to think about, right? Um, and at the same time, Right. She wants us to think about the ways in which, as you noted, right, um, letting yourself sit in it, mm -hmm. sit in those spaces um, and what that is like such that um, you make soul out of sitting in your own soul. Right. And so she talks about it um, with the language of making soul. Um, but she also talks about it as the wound um, being the thing that cures its own. The wound cures itself. Right. Mm. Um uh, but in order to get to those types of places and states, you have to let yourself go into those places. Um, and uh, and that that can be a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, so along the lines of um, learning to let go of that unitary self, mm -hmm. uh, Anzal Dua writes that she spent the first half of her life learning to rule herself, mm -hmm. to grow a will. And now at midlife, she says, I find that autonomy is a boulder on my path that I keep crashing into. I can't seem to stay out of my own way. Hmm. I've always been aware that there is a greater power than the conscious I. That power is my inner self. And she says, it's the me, she says elsewhere, that has something in common with the wind and the trees and the rocks. Um, so she has this understanding of the human being as being, um, one with the non-human world, mm -hmm. both the spiritual mm -hmm. and the natural. Mm -hmm. Now, does Anzal do understand the human being as, as a creature 
that exists more on a continuum than uh, with nature or as being discrete from nature? Mm -hmm. How would you characterize her positioning of the conscious self with respect to nature and the world of, of spirits? Yeah, um, so I think for her, what's really at stake throughout, again, the body of her literature is that uh, she wants us to think about what it means for things to have life, right? So rather than rub up against the dichotomy between nature uh, and um, that which isn't part of nature um, or um, nature and the human or the human and the spirit, right? I think what she's interested in getting us to see is that these are rather... We should be thinking about this as continuums of life forces, right? Life forces, life processes, right, of that which is living. Um, and that the status of what is living, again, should not necessarily be bookended by death, right? And so there is, um, not in Borderlands, but in her posthumously published uh, book, um, light in the dark, she has a, a section where she um, talks about spirits and she has a, a note where she says, people have often asked me if I think spirits are real. And her response is to say, it does not matter if I think spirits are real, right? What matters is how we conceptualize of uh, that which is living, right? What are the living things that affect who we are and the processes that we undergo by virtue of being the types of creatures that we are on this planet? Um, and so that creates a certain type of continuum, but it's a continuum of processes, right? Um, where death is part of that process, right? Mm -hmm. um, but not the bookend uh, terminal uh, moment, if you will, um, of that which has come in contact with us, right? And so I think she would push us, again, to not so much think about things as being um, oppositional, right? That there's humans and there's spirits, um, or that there's nature and that we're distinct from them, uh, from, from nature, but that it's all part of one big process that we are just networked into, right? If only we could just appreciate that fact more, we might um, come to a more profound understanding of what it means to be a living being, right, on this planet in this particular moment. It reminded me reading this a little bit of uh, Deleuze's philosophy. Uh, he talks about pre-individual forces, mm. pre-individual intensities, mm -hmm. and the becoming other, becoming mm -hmm. a rock, becoming mm -hmm. a fish. Mm -hmm and uh, the point of entry being something beneath the conscious mm -hmm. self, which is mm -hmm. actually fractured. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about art. Uh, we'll talk about the lose in another podcast. <laughs> uh, Anzal Dua is not terribly impressed with Western art or aesthetics. Mm -hmm. Why is that? So I think this brings us back um, actually to one of the points that we started on. Uh, in terms of the the impacts of the colonial wound, right? The making objects out of the world in order to uh, colonize. And so I think one of her starting point concerns with how we think about art is the ways in which it has created uh, Western art in particular, objects out of processes that are themselves, life imbued, right? And that this is itself uh, the effect of um, colonial traumas. And so she's not impressed with it, I think what is, is generous. I mean, I think she's just very highly critical of it um, for what Western art has done um, to the process, to creative processes, right? And I think that that's what she's primarily concerned with mm -hmm. is that creative processes for her actually end up being one of the mechanisms by which we're able to expand our senses of consciousness and awareness, right? The creative process is one link in, right, among many. Um, 
but it's one link in where the boundaries between self and other very quickly dissolve. Mm. And Western art has created an object out of these processes such that we no longer see um, those creative extensions as, as being transformative, right? We're just concerned with the final product that you can put in a gallery and can then be consumed by capitalist culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and completely uh, distancing ourselves from what's really at stake in the creation of uh, of objects, right? And um, what happens in those processes, right? In those creative moments, right? Whether it be in the creation of an object, whether it be through the process of the movement of the body in a dance, right? There's all sorts of ways in which we can cash out what it means to engage in creative processes. Even writing for her, right? Is this type of process, but it's not so much about the final product that I produce this thing for you to consume, but getting us to reflect on what these creative processes actually mean and do for us as living, breathing creatures. I was just reading a piece uh, on border art that she wrote, and she does allow for the possibility that museums, if they're daring and they take a risk, can be a kind of borderlands where cultures coexist at the same site. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe that also allow for the kind of um, participation, creative participation you Mm -hmm. were describing. But yeah, for the most part, she has a lot of critique to bring to bear Mm -hmm. on uh, the sterility of museums Mm -hmm. and kitchens and bathrooms and hospitals, mortuaries and missile bases. She includes them all. And she says it needn't be so. And she provides a recommendation. uh, But she says by taking up curanderismo. Curanderismo. Uh, What is that, by the way? For her, curanderismo um, is tracking um, the practices, um, and these are prob- these are going to be Afro-descended um, spiritual religious practices of calling forth the spirits. Um, and so, the curandero, the curandera, is the 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 embodied right location of those processes in a, in what we in a person, right? Um, generally speaking. Yeah, I, I have. I was not familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, to return to the quote, mm-hmm. uh, she also says Santeria, mm-hmm. shamanism, Taoism, Zen, and otherwise delving into the spiritual life and ceremonies of multicolored people, mm-hmm. Anglo's would perhaps lose the white sterility they have in their kitchens, bathrooms, mm-hmm. hospitals, mortuaries, and missile base uh, bases, mm-hmm. museums. Uh, she would include as well. Um, I have friends who work, who do performative dance, mm-hmm. and they think of themselves as shamans. Yeah. Anzul Dua talks about the shamanic state. Mm-hmm. What does she mean by that? I think part of what she's getting after there of the shamanic state in, um, especially in practices that involve um, what we would typically refer to as performative practices. Um, is the, again, the dissolution of the subject and the object with respect to the body and uh, a contending with the body as a fluid landscape that is in communication with and can communicate with its environment in all sorts of porous ways, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the places where you might see that, right, is is precisely in um, in dance, right? Um, where oftentimes dancers, especially if you're dancing in communities with other people, right? So if you're you're um, doing partner dancing or group dancing, um, whether it be part of religious practices or spiritual practices, there is a often a dissolution, right? Uh, a discussion about the fact that you're no longer just an I. There's there's something more profoundly networked at stake that dancing can. Um, tap us into. And I think that that's what she's after, right? And at that point, right, identity categories like uh, gender or like race also start to dissolve um, because they no longer become the mediating ways by which we communicate, right? Bodily movements uh, might do other type of work there. And so the body becomes uh, more ambiguous, if you will, Mm -hmm. than we would traditionally think about it as moving through the world, as you know, the body um, tends to be more. Uh, we tend to talk about the body as being more concrete than that. 
How does Anzal Dua introduce this performative bodily dimension into her practice of writing? Because philosophers have to write a lot. I can think of a number of philosophers in training like myself who wish they could practice and were more encouraged to practice a writing style more like Anzal Dua's and less like the typical article you might read in a philosophy journal. So what form of writing does Anzal Dua both describe and model for us and are there perhaps some philosophical advantages to be had in taking inspiration from this form of writing? Yeah, so she does such a beautiful job of reminding us um, that writing is never just about writing, right? That writing is not just about the production of words that mean something, right? Sure, yes, that is that is one dimension of what ends up happening, but she does a really great job at getting us to reflect on all of the performative necessities um, and acts that have to occur in order for something to be written, right? And she uniquely points out that for her, um, she thinks in she thinks pictorially, right? And so, um, if you look in her um, in some of her other work outside of Borderlands, um, in Light in the Dark, uh, there's some uh, uh, copies of her doodles of mm. her concepts um, in conjunction with her writing. So you can kind of see the way she's pictorially trying to exhume something out of herself that is not in written form, right? But rather conceptually uh, rooted in, uh, in, in, uh, in a visual representation that is not itself linguistic yet, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that's one of the most unique things that she gives us for thinking about writing is that writing is about um, pulling something out of ourselves, right? But it's, it's, a, it's a pulling something out of ourselves that uh, isn't sterile, right? And has a relationship to who we are, how we are, all of the histories and, and genealogies that we come with. Um, and that act of um, translating that into some kind of linguistic pattern that we would, uh, you know, then call writing, right, is itself also a process. It's not just as simple as um, spitting words out onto a page um, and therefore um, is going to be a flesh and bone experience. It's not just... Um, the pulling of certain words to track meaning as maybe our more traditional philosophers might want us to think about writing, um, but rather it's going to be a process of all sorts of things that have to do with who this self is in the world um, at, the, at that particular moment, right? Which might be a different type of self the next time you go sit down mm. to write, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on what is going on in your life in those moments. Um, and so I'm, you know, in asking what are the philosophical advantages of such writing, it's not clear to me that there is an advantage or that we should be thinking about it as having an advantage, but rather that... To do good conceptual philosophical digging, we should be thinking more about the processes by which we arrive at concepts as being multifaceted in the ways that she's inviting us to think about them. And so it's not that there's an advantage, but rather that this is what philosophy should look like, right? Mm -hmm. It's paying attention to these types of details of the processes that generate ideas in the first place, right? That we then try to communicate with each other. And it might give rise to different forms of expressions that can be tied in interesting ways with artistic forms of expression. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the I think actually, and we just did a, a podcast uh, with Dr. Stephen Nadler on Spinoza. Mm -hmm. And I think of... Deleuze, to bring him up again, uh, <laughs> I, I, I do promise a podcast on Deleuze at some point. <laughs> he wrote two books on Spinoza. In his second one, titled uh, Spinoza, Practical Philosophy, he concludes with asking the question about Spinoza and us. And 
he describes Spinoza's masterpiece, The Ethics, as having certain subterranean movements. Mm-hmm. And he almost describes it, he, he uh, compares it to a, a, a work of music, mm-hmm. having certain rhythms and melodies. And yeah. so, I, think, um, I think that's a really interesting way of describing uh, the ethics. And I think, in fact, um, mm. philosophy sometimes does give rise to these interesting uh, conceptual creatures that have something in common with, uh, with art. Um, and I think these practices, like writing as a sensuous act, can put us in touch with some of those pre-individual forces and intensities that have a lot in common with art in the sense as well that the both have creativity at their basis, mm-hmm. forms of creative expression. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to read uh, another quote from Anzal Dua about writing, hmm. and she starts capitalizing writing uh, with a capital W here in this particular quote. The writing is my whole life. It is my obsession. The vampire, which is my talent, does not suffer other suitors. Daily I court it, offer my neck to its teeth. This is the sacrifice that the act of creation requires, a blood sacrifice. For only through the body, through the pooling of flesh, can the human soul be transformed. And for images, words, stories to have this transformative power, they must arise from the human body, flesh and bone, and from the earth's body, stone, sky, liquid, soil. I find that inspiring as uh, as someone who has to do a lot of writing and who's interested <laughs> in, in creative writing and yeah. f- uh, h- trying to help break philosophy free from the rigid academic styles yeah. that uh, characterize mm-hmm. it today. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's such a beautiful quote that embodies exactly that sentiment, right? Um, that writing... Um, is a creative process. Um, it's not about sterilizing ideas for the sake of clarity, right? But rather a process of 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 the human sort, of the messy, complex, uh, affective sort um, that sometimes hurts, right? It is like pulling teeth or uh, feeling one's flesh and bone in particular types of ways because we are bodies that are doing the writing, right? Um, And I think that that's part of what she's trying to get us to think about, right, is that um, it doesn't matter the type of writing you're doing, right? Um, Writing is a creative process. And so we should think about maybe in philosophy, well, what has philosophy done to us uh, or told us to do to our writing in order to rise to a particular standard of what people might call clarity, Right. And what do we have to leave by the wayside in order to do that? And I think she's of the opinion that we have to leave our souls in order to do that. Um, and so maybe maybe we really need to rethink what philosophy does to us along the way. Yeah. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast is to open up a space for myself and others to write differently, yes. differently than, than how we typically write for yes. class term papers and so on. We're beginning to run out of time now, but I can't conclude the conversation until we talk about chapter seven of Borderlands. Yes. (laughs) And the title of chapter seven is Towards a New Consciousness. And in that chapter, Anzal Dua puts out a call. It's a call for her readers to continue working towards something that's already in the making, namely an alien consciousness, a new mestiza consciousness, a consciousness of the Borderlands. But what are some of the key features of this new mestiza consciousness? What does philosophy have to learn from it? Oh my goodness, that's a that's a loaded <laughs> question. No, um, so I think um, in terms of uh, the qualities of this mestiza consciousness, um, I think what she's trying to communicate is the importance of uh, situating oneself in the spaces of ambiguity with respect to identity and identity formation, right? And what 
that then does for how we think about ourselves in the world and then how we think about ourselves in relationship to, to others. And those relationalities always already being um, layered on top of each other, right? So although we have to talk about these things as being distinct, I don't think she is thinking of them as distinct, right? Um, and so this is just one of the the challenges of uh, trying to linguistically communicate about some things that are maybe not so simply or neat um, uh, in their categorizations. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, uh, it's a consciousness that appreciates uh, ambiguity. Um, she calls it, um, it's gendered, right? So it's mestiza consciousness. It's um, feminine gendered. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, one that's rooted in right the the place of the borderlands right um, that can appreciate the ways in which we are products of all sorts of ruptures right and the ambiguities that exist when we when we really really situate ourselves there um, and I would say right what what can we learn from this right well. Um, Again, I think part of what she's really, really hammering in for us is that how we think about consciousness and what it means to be a conscious, living, breathing um, creature uh, really needs to be uh, reconceptualized, mm -hmm. right? Such that we are not dichotomizing our world into subject and object, that we're not fragmenting ourselves from the world as subject and object, and that we are subsequently not approaching each other, right, as subjects and objects, right, and treating each other in those ways, right, um, and working through uh, the traumas that get us to those places, right, because this isn't going to be an easy process under any... Um, any kind of semblance of the imagination. There's nothing simple about doing this, right? But this is where the important work is is going to be. Yeah, she talks about internal strife mm -hmm. and emotional states of perplexity, psychic restlessness. An important aspect of the new Mestiza consciousness is cultural collision. Mm -hmm. And what does what does she mean by that? I think um, what she's after there is that um, the mestiza, by virtue of being um, uh, the product of, uh, literally, um, the product of cultural collision, right, of racial and ethnic um, uh, contact premised on uh, rape and genocide, right, the mestiza emerges as this with the possibilities of working from that place explicitly, right? Um, and so this is part of her frame of reference, right? She cannot um, escape this. This is what it means to be mestiza, is to be um, a mixed uh, person in all capacities, right? Not just racially um, or ethnically, right? But mixed in all of the ways, um, culturally, um, and then for her, also part of what's at stake here is also in terms of sexuality, right? So uh, just being at the kind of intersections of so many dimensions of identity that she carries with her um, without much of a choice, right? Um, but as a result of that situatedness, um, she's also able to understand the world in a very different way than normative um, subjects might otherwise, right? Um, and hence, it's it's attached to a certain level of consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, An awareness of the world um, operating in a different type of way that drops out of being the product of these types of collisions. Um, and so, again, what can we learn from this? Well, we can learn a lot, right? We can learn a lot about what it means to be um, a conscious person um, and what types of reflections that requires of us along the way, um, as well as what types of blind spots we might have in that self-searching, right, um, that she's asking us to do. Um, and so this will then be the path for her, I think, or it becomes the path, right, of handling um, the strifes that we come with. Mm -hmm. And it's a, a consciousness that is rooted in and emerges from that strife mm -hmm. and from woundedness mm -hmm. that results from oppression. Yeah. I think she put she puts it at the 
the third world, the first world grading up against the third world Correct. and causing it to bleed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But she doesn't, it's not a consciousness that's rooted in a victim mentality. No. It's about overcoming what she describes as the violent duel of oppressor and oppressed. Mm-hmm. And that overcoming is a way of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I even wonder if overcoming is the word, is even a, a, a good term to mm-hmm. capture what she wants us to think about. Because overcoming, I think, for a lot of us signals um, a departure of what came before. And I'm not so sure that that's actually what she wants for us to do, right? Is Another that, word she uses is healing. Is too. healing, yeah. And so maybe it also means that we need to rethink how we understand the term overcoming, right, mm. um, as as something that we integrate into ourselves, but we never really leave anything behind, right? Nothing is ever holistically left behind us. We carry all of the, the strifes and traumas of our lives um, and uh, for her, right, even our transgenerational stripes, we carry those with us mm-hmm. um, in different types of ways. So um, it's not so much that we can overcome them, but in that we're never going to leave them, right? Mm-hmm. But that we um, become more aware of the fact that we carry them with us in really important and meaningful and significant ways, right? Mm-hmm. And that these will impact um, how we navigate the world, and will, as we become more aware of them, help us also heal, right? But again, healing not with the goal of creating a unitary subject. Could we maybe retain the notion of overcoming in relation to overcoming dualisms? Yeah, yeah. And so rather than having a victim mentality of the oppressed in a negative sense where you're constantly just... Um, uh, railing against the oppressor mm-hmm. and it just becomes this interminable back and forth with mm-hmm. no ending mm-hmm. overcoming that um, sort of resentfulness mm-hmm. that would only lead to more violence and, and instead as she puts it healing the split that originates in the very foundation of our lives our culture our languages our thoughts and she continues a massive uprooting of dualistic thinking in the individual and collective consciousness is the beginning of a long struggle, but one that could, in our best hopes, bring us closer to the end of rape, of violence, of war. Yeah, I think that that's, um, I think that 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 tracks, right, what the type of work that she wants us to be doing, right, in terms, particularly in terms of um, structuring our awareness and our consciousness of the world in terms of dualistic thinking, right? Um, and shifting, right, shifting our orientations towards other types of relationalities or possible relationalities that we can have um, with each other that aren't um, predicated, right, on this type of um, violent distance between things, right, um, in some in some way, shape, or form. And again, I don't think that this is um, going to be an easy thing to do, but she is certainly... Um, giving us food for for thought on on the possibilities of doing it. Yes, she says the beginning of a long struggle. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the struggles, uh, she she says, is that there's, you know, part of meeting the struggle is to surrender notions of safety and familiarity. Mm -hmm. You have to expose yourself. You have to be open. You, if you close yourself off to it, then you're just going to uh, reproduce the same kind of um, violent dynamics that are creating all the suffering. And you'll never be able to get out of it. Um, and instead of reproducing the violence, the role of the mestiza is, she writes, to link people together with each other. The blacks with Jews, with Indians, with Asians, with whites, with extraterrestrials. Mm-hmm. Yes, the mestiza um, is the bridge, right? Um, and the, the the metaphor of the bridge is another one that follows her body of work. Um, but yeah, uh, the the mestiza, I think, for her embodies the possibility possibilities of bridging, right? Where we recognize also that the bridges themselves are ambiguous borderlands, right? If you stand at the center of a bridge, you're not quite in between. You're literally in between all of the in-betweens, right? Mm. Um, and uh, the the mestiza 
um, carries those possibilities, right? Um, which isn't to say that other people can't do this type of work, but I think she thinks that mestizas are, um, or the the mestiza consciousness is going to be the product of um, these types of particular conditions. Yes, becoming yourself the bridge, becoming the place where phenomena collide, mm-hmm. where alien phenomena collide. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, again, that also um, was a, a familiar idea to me. I remember being in Japan and South Korea, and uh, I was in Japan for four years, South Korea for, for two. I never oh, left wow. uh, Japan at all for that during that entire four years. And I always felt like to understand something, you sort of have to live it. You mm-hmm. have to become... You have to become it in a way. It's got to be a lived uh, experience. So you, I always conceptualize myself as sort of becoming a place where um, incommensurable ways of life and ways of thinking about thing, things collide. And sort of in the, in the process of becoming that, it generates new sparks of meaning. And so that, uh, that was something that really stood out to me. Yeah, and I would say that she, that speaks profoundly to her push for us to think about the fact that uh, knowing is about living. It's not about a distancing between um, ideas and um, us just consuming them in books, right? But that to know things, right, to really know things um, is about experiencing the world as a living creature, right? Um, Of living in the world, um, not about distancing yourself from it. Yes, and that's something that I, I think a lot of students in philosophy might struggle with because there's, the demands of graduate work in philosophy Indeed. are such that yeah. you find yourself more and more withdrawn, mm-hmm. more and more uh, alienated. Yeah, And that in itself is a kind of lived experience yeah. in its own right, to be immersed in the brouhaha of brilliant books. Indeed. Um, so there is an engagement that can take place at the at that level. I think that's legitimate, but it's you can't ever replace the experiences of going out there and uh, being a part of a community uh, and of opening yourself to other communities. And it's sad that we don't have very many avenues by which to, to do that. We have study abroad programs right, and things like that, but right. not a whole lot going on right. in terms of facilitating this kind of um, this kind of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. I always tell students, um, because, you know, we can't travel everywhere given our limited resources, but um, when you're dealing with ideas, you always have to remind yourself that ideas come from a place and they come from people. And so we should always ask ourselves, right, what is the place and who are the people um, from which these ideas emanate, right? And think about the fact that um, those are also landscapes, right? So um, where people are writing and how they're writing has a material existence. It has a smell. It has a visual. It has a feel. It has a texture, right? Um, although we're often not thinking about it, um, there are material conditions that generate the possibilities of ideas. Mm. Um, and we should travel there mm-hmm. when we are think- even when we're amidst, right, um, all of our graduate coursework and in the in the sea of ideas, right? Don't forget that ideas require material conditions to emerge. Yeah. And so question what those material conditions might be like, right? If you can't visit them or experience them um, yourself in those moments, right? Hopefully eventually we we can. But um, when you can't, um, right, try imagining, right, what those material conditions are like. Yeah, it's a kind of empathic learning. Mm-hmm. I remember well, along these lines, I remember one um, philosopher telling me he was the president, I think, at the time of the American Association of Philosophers, Nicholas Wolterstorff. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a graduation dinner. And I remember him saying, you know, think about how you evaluate other philosophers, right? Mm-hmm. Would you say that to their face? Yeah. <laughs> You're so quick to jump and criticize and say you got it all wrong. Would you really be willing to say right, that to somebody's right, face? Right, 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 yeah. I think that applies, too, to what you were describing. Right. Uh, think about it. Um, experience it. Indeed. Do your best yeah. to put yourself in another person's shoes and understand those lived conditions from which ideas emerge. Yeah. Well, I want to conclude mm-hmm. with a question about the title of the mm. book that we've been discussing. <laughs> and... That title is Borderlands, and it names at once a geopolitical zone and a multifaceted concept. 
How does this title, or how can this title help to tie back together some or maybe even all of the tangle of themes that we've been weaving our way through throughout this discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a beautiful place to end in terms of um, thinking about um, Ansaldúa's work. Um, and as you noted, right, it signals a geopolitical zone as well as a concept. But I think for her, um, it's also a material embodied starting point, right? The borderlands is a place right? Um, it is also uh, embodied and carried, right? Um, it is a, a, a mechanism of consciousness and consciousness building. Um, it's also the embodiment of ambiguity, precisely because of the type of geopolitical zone that it is, right? Um, and so I think the key there, the thread key for her would be, right, um, in is is that it's it's material and it's lived and it has an extension um, as a result of that um, that can be threaded throughout everything that she works on, um, trying to draw attention to the fact that we are more than just moving objects in the world, right? Um, we are situated, we are embodied, um, and we have a relationship to the lands that we walk on, the people that we come in contact with, and all of the living, breathing things that we also um, exchange with, right, um, on a daily basis. Um, and that also give us the possibilities of life. Um, and so I would say that for her, um, for us to think about the borderlands is to get us to draw awareness to what it means to be um, human beings, fundamentally human beings. Mm. Well, Dr. Rivera Baruz, thank you so much for sharing your time and insight with us today. So hopefully we've been able to help create a consciousness of borderlands, not only between Chicana feminist theory and Western rationality, between our conscious selves and the other powers within us, but also between philosophy and the people. Excellent. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this discussion and would like to engage the topic in more depth, be sure to sign up for our free weekend seminar starting Saturday, September 5th. The seminar will be held online over a period of 14 weeks and is open to anyone. Just email philosophyforthepeople at gmail.com and you will be automatically registered to receive updates and weekly invitations to our online classroom. This has been a Solid Work production. Solid Work? Solid Work. Uh, solid Work. Hey, Solid Work.